welcomed uh, prior to even coming in here and during our greeting time, but welcome. It's good to see you here, and especially if you are worshiping with us maybe for the first time today, uh, we're uh, honored that you are here and trust that the Lord will continue to minister uh, to your heart as we turn our attention now to his word. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark. We continue here in our series in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 21 through 43. We're going to handle, uh, at least I'll read a larger chunk this morning. I'm going to break this passage up into two weeks, this week and next week, but I want you to get the overall context here in Mark chapter 5. If you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments... I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. And fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up, began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Our great God and Heavenly Father, none of us are here by accident this morning. You do nothing haphazardly. You do nothing by chance. There's really no such thing as accidental in your sovereign power and world. 
So we recognize, God, that if we are here this morning in this time and this place, it is because you have called us here. So, Lord, I pray in these moments that we continue to have together as we open up your word, that you would actually open up our eyes, that we would behold your glory. Teach us. Lead us. Shape us. Convict us, Lord, in the areas of our lives where, well, where we need your holy conviction. Give us eyes to see Christ this morning, ears to hear his voice. Father, speak to us, I pray, for we are listening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Desperate times call for what? Desperate measures. We've all heard the phrase that thought is believed to have originated from the notes of the ancient Greek physician Hippocrates. He actually wrote, for extreme diseases, extreme methods of cure are most suitable. Sometime over the centuries, really over the millennia, we've kind of morphed that phrase into what is more common, what we hear today, desperate times call for desperate measures. And in our day, we can tend to use this phrase pretty liberally. It's what we might think when our favorite team is losing and the clock is ticking away, there's a minute to play, and we want the coach to do something. Do something desperate. That's a desperate situation. That's what we also might say as we write a really big check to pay for a new roof and new shingles on our house so that it won't keep leaking. Those are desperate measures. It's also why perhaps at the very end of a long day at the office, maybe a stressful day at the office, or perhaps just a long day at home with your kids, you eat a big bowl of ice cream with sprinkles. Desperate times. They call for desperate measures. Now, your definition of desperate might be different than mine, but we all have in mind some situation in our lives where things are broken, some circumstance in our lives where maybe things have broken down for us. We're confronted with a situation where it actually doesn't appear to have a whole lot of hope, and so no half measures will do. No, this is a desperate time, so it requires some desperate, very desperate measures. Now, the last few scenes here in the book of Mark have introduced us to some very desperate people in some very desperate times who required some very desperate measures. The end of Mark chapter 4, you may recall, it was the disciples who were desperate to save their lives. They found themselves in a very small boat amidst a very great storm. Two weeks ago, we encountered a desperate, suicidal demoniac who was completely out of his mind. Desperate indeed. And in our text this morning, we're introduced to, to two different but related situations that appear just as hopeless and just as desperate, maybe even more so than those previous ones. And so we might read this and think, well, well, okay. Jesus has finally met his match here in Mark chapter 5. I mean, calming a storm with one word, I mean, that's pretty cool. Driving demons from a troubled man into 2,000 pigs, and those 2,000 pigs then run squealing right off the cliff. I mean, that's, that's maybe even cooler, unless you're the pigs, or they're your pigs, and you just lost your income. 
instantly healing an unclean and untouchable woman? Raising a dead girl to life? I don't know that it gets any more desperate than that. I don't know what I don't know what you may be facing today, church. I don't know what situation in your life you may think is desperate, it's broken, it's beyond repair, some diagnosis perhaps. Perhaps it is just your weary, suffering soul. But I know you have desperate situations, as I do. I know you, have, you are dealing with situations that appear irreparably broken. And perhaps you're here this morning and it is just God's grace for you that you are here because, in fact, growth for you would be able to say, you know what, I'm, maybe I'm in a far desperate need than I think. And the Lord will minister his grace to you today. Perhaps you know that you are in a bit of a desperate situation this morning, but you've been shouldering that burden alone. You're starting to feel the weight of that, even being crushed over that, and you don't really have a whole lot of hope that anything is going to change this week. Why would this week be any different than last week? If that's you, I am glad that you are here, because I want you to meet Jesus. I want you to meet this Jesus that we read about here in Mark chapter 5. King Jesus. This Jesus, as Mark tells us here, does some of his best work in the lives of some very desperate people who face some incredibly desperate situations, even as they tried to fix themselves what was broken in their lives but couldn't, but yet kept on trying. So there are two stories here of desperation that are sandwiched in our text here in Mark chapter 5. Now many sermons handle these in, well, one story, at least uh, these stories together. And for good reason, they're making a similar point. There are overlapping themes, so I want to invite you back next week. But if you're here next week, you'll, you may be sitting there thinking, didn't I hear some of this last week? Is Brinkman repeating himself? Maybe it's been a rough week for him. No, I, I get it. You are going to hear something similar next week. I just want you to know in advance I'm not losing it, but we do need reminders. Sometimes we don't get it on the first pass, so that's what some of next week will be. Reminders are good. But there's a lot to draw from both of these stories here, and so our focus this morning will really be on verses 25 through 34. There, Mark tells us about a very desperate woman with a severe medical condition. And in typical Markan fashion, the action here is fast-paced. He moves from one scene to a second scene and then back to that first scene. That's what scholars like to call this as a Markan sandwich. So there's a one scene, scene one, then there's kind of a diversion, and then Mark comes back to that second scene. Here's the first scene, really verses 21 through 24. Jesus and his disciples, Mark tells us, have now crossed back across the Sea of Galilee. They've left that largely Gentile area and those aforementioned pigs. And you'll notice that Jesus' popularity has not waned at all. In fact, a great crowd gathers while he's getting off the boat. And Jesus is immediately met by a man named Jairus. He's an important man, and we'll look at him more next week. But Jairus tells Jesus that his daughter is sick. In fact, she's deathly ill, and so he begs Jesus to come to his house. Maybe Jesus could heal her, and Jesus agrees. 
And so he begins to, to walk that way towards his house. And the crowd is pressing in around him. So really what we have here, church, is, is a mob. We've got a mob of people all crowding in and pressing in against Jesus. Probably hundreds of people here. Many in the crowd there are just hoping for another miracle. Yeah, they're, they're there for the show. They've probably heard a little bit of what, what happened on the other side of the lake. And so they're gathered there to say, well, I wonder what he's going to do on this side. Now at this point, though, if, if Mark had an iPhone, let's just say he had the coolest version of the iPhone, and if he was videoing and just panning around here, he's catching this scene, I think at this point he, he presses stop because something, actually someone in that crowd has actually caught his attention. And so Mark kind of zooms in with his iPhone there. He presses record, and this is what he notices, verse 25. Here's scene two. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Mark actually records this woman's troubles in uh, one long sentence in the Greek. It's actually the better part of three verses here in our English Bibles. Mark zooms in, and what does he see? A suffering woman in the crowd. For 12 years, she had been hemorrhaging blood. Not just here and there, but every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 12 long years, this woman had endured constant suffering, constant pain, and the shame and the messiness associated with her bleeding. In other words, this isn't the kind of condition that you could hide. She couldn't hide it at all. In fact, her condition made her an outcast. It made her ceremonially unclean. And so for 12 years now, this suffering woman has been dying a slow, agonizing, embarrassing, shameful death. Maybe she looked to Jewish law for help. The Talmud, which was a central text of Judaism, is the primary source of religious law. It actually prescribed a whole bunch, nine different remedies for someone like her. So no doubt she probably tried those, but... Those remedies are, well, that's putting it uh, graciously, they're, they're just grotesque. The things that prescribed for her to do to fix herself. The point was there was no cure. According to the Old Testament law in Leviticus 15, 19, this woman would remain unclean. So if she was married prior to her hemorrhaging, well, she's not married anymore. She couldn't gather with God's people at the temple. She couldn't receive a hug. No one for fear of contamination would, would come anywhere near her for 12 years. There's no trips, camping trips for the long weekend with family and friends, no sitting around the campfire eating s'mores, no birthday parties to attend, no graduations to celebrate. How utterly alone. How hopeless and desperate. It, it's almost less than human, this woman's existence. She's not unlike the suicidal demoniac from a few weeks ago. 
She too appears to be beyond human help. Although it's not for her own lack of effort in trying to solve her problem, is it? Luke in chapter 8, verse 43, he simply states that no one was able to heal her. Mark here in verse 26, notice, says that the, the more doctors that she saw, the more money that she spent, the more suffering she incurred, and, and the worse that she actually became. Now, Mark here is not blaming doctors. He's not making a statement about the medical system. He's simply letting us know that this woman, suffering woman, went to the end of the earth, and the end of all of her means, her abilities, her money, her energies, and still there was no solution for her, for her very desperate condition. Now, I don't like pain. I don't like to deal with pain probably any more than you do. But if I'm in pain, what's the one thing that I want in that moment when I'm in pain? Relief. I don't want to be in pain. I want relief. So if I have a stomach ache, usually I just tend to think, well, you're, you're probably hungry, so just eat something. Ironically, though, if, if I have a headache, I tend to think the same thing. You should just eat something. If I have a backache, well, you should probably just eat something. But it only goes so far. It doesn't really bring relief. Think how frustrating and hopeless you might be if, let's say you did suffer from from a, a grueling daily stomach ache for 12 years without any relief. And so you go to one doctor and he says, you know what? Yeah, you need to change your diet. You need to only eat these foods. You need to steer clear of these foods. And so you do that because you're a good patient. But yet three months into that new diet, it's not working. Your pain has just increased. So you go to another doctor and she says, well, you actually need surgery. But you're not too hip on that. You want to get another opinion. So you go to another physician and she hands you bottles of essential oils and just says, rub these on your belly for two weeks and you'll be cured. So you do that, but that doesn't work either. And finally, in a last-ditch effort, you hear about some doctor on the East Coast that specializes in stomach aches. And so you spend a lot of money. You get on a plane. You spend, you spend money on hotel rooms. And you meet with this doctor and that doctor says, well, the stomach pain appears to be connected to some other issues, it's probably more your back. That's actually where we need to focus on. So let's just have you go through a whole battery of tests. You spent all this time, all this energy, all this money, and yet you still have a stomach ache that's just getting worse for all of your desperate measures and desperate attempts to figure out and to fix yourself. It's just grown worse. Now, I know for some of you here, I just read several pages of your diary. That's, that's what's in your journal. Some of you here actually, actually really can relate to this woman who's hemorrhaging blood for 12 years because you perhaps might live with some chronic condition, everyday pain, some diagnosis or situation in your life, a broken body, a broken mind, a suffering soul. And you look around and you think, I've, I don't know what else there is I can do. I feel like I've tried everything, maybe under the sun, and it's not getting better. It's still getting worse. And there is a sense of hopeless desperation that sets in. You too may feel like you are like this woman, just 
you're just barely hanging on. You, you got about an ounce of faith left. Good. You got an ounce of faith. Jesus can do a lot with a little. This Jesus, King Jesus, he's the God of desperate people. Whether you recognize that or not, he's the God of desperate people who find themselves in desperate situations. And this Jesus can do far more than you can imagine or think with what you might think is your last ounce of faith in him. Do you realize, church, that about the only thing, the only good thing that this suffering, unclean woman had going for her was that she had heard a report about Jesus. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. And so she came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. This desperate woman thinks, you know what, if I could just get near him, if I could just come near Jesus, maybe, just maybe, if I can reach out and touch him and to touch his robe, he can do what 12 years of doctor visits couldn't do. I love what stands out here for Mark as he records it. Yes, he records her physical and emotional sufferings. But notice what Mark says about this woman. She had heard reports about Jesus. This woman was not part of the in crowd. She never met Jesus before. She wasn't listening to him preach and teach by the sea. She wasn't across the other side of the Sea of Galilee witnessing all these miracles. She wasn't hanging around at the temple for a little meet and greet with Jesus. She's an outcast. She's unclean. She's an outsider. She never met Jesus, but she had heard reports about him. You know, some of you may be here today, you're in a very similar situation. You heard that this was a church, maybe this was a place where you could meet Jesus. This was a place where there's going to be a bunch of people here who, who are all worshiping Jesus. You can actually hear about Jesus. Maybe you had a grandparent many years ago tell you something about Jesus. Maybe it's a colleague at work this last week who just said something to, to draw your memory a little bit. And so, so here you are this morning. And you've heard or you're beginning to find out that maybe this Jesus is different than what you thought, what you had anticipated, who you thought he was. Maybe this Jesus doesn't run from unclean people, but this Jesus, King Jesus, loves desperate people. He seems to have a deep affection for some very desperate people. And so here you are. And it very well could be that You've been here before. Maybe you've heard a lot about Jesus, potentially over the years. But you find yourself in, well, a, a bit of a desperate situation this morning. And so now you're actually really starting to pay attention. Whatever the case, this Jesus that we're encountering here in Mark chapter 5, he really does love desperate people who try to fix themselves but can't. And he really actually has a good plan for you, for us. This suffering woman knows that she is nobody to everybody around her. But that actually is not the end of her story. If anything, it's 
just maybe the first few pages. Because you know what else this suffering, outcast, unclean woman has heard? Well, she's heard that Jesus can save anybody. She's heard a report that this Jesus, well, he can do the impossible. He can actually save anybody. And church, that's all she needed to know. That's faith. That's real faith. That's sincere faith. Perfect faith? No. A fully orbed faith? No. But it's real faith nonetheless. And with that sort of real faith, this suffering woman reaches out from among the crowd that is pressing in on Jesus, and she manages just to touch his garment as he goes by. Matthew, in his account in chapter 9, says that she only touched the fringe of his garment. So it's not like she tackled Jesus, and he stood up, and he's like, who did that? And she's like, I tackled you. She's, that wasn't it at all. I mean, she's going through arms and legs and people, and she's like, she reaches out. That's the best that she could do. Because she also understood her own situation very well. For 12 years, she had listened to some very religious people. They called them scholars even, who tell her that she doesn't belong. To tell her that she's an outcast, that she is unclean. So if she touches Jesus, well, Jesus becomes unclean and she remains unclean. Unclean, touching, clean. So she's been told equals unclean. But notice what happens when she touches Jesus. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, she becomes clean. So with Jesus, cleanliness is, is contagious. Now, it's certainly not like that with our kids or teenagers. But with Jesus, it is. She touches Jesus, verse 29, at once the flow of blood dried up and she was healed of her disease. How many words did Jesus need in order to make that miracle happen? Well, not one. He didn't even speak. But yet his power completely healed her. That's the Jesus that she had heard reports about. That's the same Jesus with the same power that healed the demoniac and that, that stopped the, the sea from storming. That Jesus had just healed her instantly and completely without even speaking a word. Evidently, Jesus really can save anybody. Evidently, Jesus can make the unclean clean. Evidently, Jesus can take 12 years of shame and begin the process of redeeming it and redeeming her. Evidently, Jesus has the power and the authority to save desperate people who cannot save themselves but still keep trying. Church, do you, are, are you getting what's going on here? Do you see the transforming power of the gospel right here? The gospel reminds us that in Christ, through the work of Christ, his redemptive work on the cross and in his glorious resurrection from the dead, we who are unclean touch Jesus who is clean, and what happens? 
we become clean. Unclean sinners touching clean Savior equals clean. Clean heart. Clean conscience. Do you actually believe this morning that Jesus can make you clean? And the truth is, well, I want to. I hope so. I think so. Maybe. Do you really believe that this Jesus can make you clean? What is it in your life that you, where's that, where's that tension? Where do you keep running into that sort of proverbial brick wall? What keeps tripping you up this morning? Maybe it is that you struggle with self-loathing. You never measure up to your own standards. So you live with that crushing weight, trying to be enough for yourself and the people around you. Perhaps you lost your virginity, lost your sobriety. Maybe you are the biggest hypocrite that you know. Do you actually believe that Jesus can save you and that Jesus can make you clean? Maybe all you have to go on today is, is, is basically what this suffering woman had, just an ounce of faith. She had heard a report about Jesus, and she, she had heard that some, very, some other very desperate people were helped by him. And so she says, you know what? Maybe Jesus can help me too. Maybe if I can just get near him, he, he can help me. He can change my life. What have I got to lose? Well, what have you got to lose this morning by turning to Jesus? A lot of times I think, sometimes, we, many times I think we struggle. We hear something like this and we think, well, if, if I actually give Jesus all of my stuff, my baggage, my sins, my sufferings, my weakness, isn't that... Isn't that going to make him unclean or at least just less holy? Like, do I, take, do I rob God a little bit of the glory if, if I give him all of my stuff? So we're reticent to actually be honest before the Lord, to confess our sins, our areas of need, our weakness. We don't really want to look too desperate before the Lord, thinking that perhaps, well, he's not going to hear us. What have you got to lose this morning in freely confessing your sins and repenting of impurities, just confessing your desperate need for his mercy and grace. You know that none of that, brothers and sisters, makes Jesus less holy. It actually makes you more holy. So turn to him, pray to him, study him, talk to those who, who have also been helped by him to see what he has done for them. That's, that's faith. That's sincere faith. That's true faith. Faith that arises out of your desperate need. Sincere faith that still believes today that Jesus loves to save desperate people out of their desperate need. And if he did this for this woman, he can do that for me. He can do that for you. He can do that for us. Real faith believes that Jesus can make anybody clean. True faith believes that Jesus can redeem the worst and the best of sinners. Jesus can save anybody who calls out to them in their desperate need. And that's what we find here. This suffering woman is now healed, well, by a simple touch of the robe of Jesus. I mean, that is miraculous, to be sure, but, but it's not magical. 
I mean, Jesus didn't cast a spell on her. Jesus knows exactly what's going on here, verse 30. He's fully aware that power has gone out from him, and so he asks, who touched my garments? Which again, as we insert ourselves here into this, we think that's kind of a strange question to ask, isn't it? And the disciples actually thought it strange as well. That's why you can read their response in verse 31. But essentially they're saying, um, Jesus, who didn't touch your garment? Everybody touched your garment. There's a zillion people here. And by the way, Jesus, remember, would you please stay focused because we got to keep moving to Jerry's house so we can't get waylaid here. Jesus, we really need you to be on your A game. Stay focused. I mean, I think the question here from Jesus reveals much more the disciples' lack of sensitivity and, and care to, to what's going on. They, they still don't get it. They're actually clueless to what just happened in front of them. So in a sense here, Jesus calls out this desperate woman, not to interrogate her, not to embarrass her, but he's actually, I think he's making a point to the disciples, and he actually wants to be public in his compassion for this suffering woman. And you notice her response. This desperate woman now healed falls down before Jesus. In the sense there is in awe, in worship. In that moment, this suffering woman, she doesn't too much care about the throng of people that are passing her by and tripping over her. She really isn't all that interested in what people are talking and murmuring and whispering about her. She's been listening to that for 12 long years. In that moment, she approaches Jesus in faith, real faith, sincere faith, as the one who took away her, her shame. She sees Jesus as the one who made her clean, the one who saved her life. So in that moment, this suffering, desperate woman, now healed, has come face to face with her Savior. And in case anybody in that crowd wondered on that day, and perhaps you're here and you're a little bit skeptical, you're still trying to put the pieces together, totally get it. Well, Jesus makes clear it was her faith that saved her, verse 34. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus addresses someone as daughter. This woman had been ignored for 12 years. Nobody had said a word to her. Nobody would reach out to her. But yet here's Jesus who's actually inviting her into a relationship. This Jesus has the power to drive demons from a demoniac, and yet he has the compassion to speak to a suffering woman words, no doubt that she would never, ever forget. Who's this Jesus? This Jesus has ferocious power and a tender heart. Ferocious power and a tender heart. That's the kind of God that you need. It's the kind of God that I need. A God of ferocious power, yet a tender heart. That's the kind of God that desperate people, like us, need. Yes, ferocious power to calm the sea, to drive out demons, to deal with our sins and our miseries. 
and our enemies. But yet the tenderness to invite desperate people who have tried everything to fix what is broken and it's only gone worse and he invites us to turn to him and be saved. That's who this Jesus is. Maybe that will jumpstart your prayer life this week. As you remember, the God that you are praying to, this is the God who has ferocious power, but he doesn't use that power to squash you or condemn you. He uses that power to save you, to sanctify you, to do for you what you cannot do yourself, but maybe have even tried. That's this Jesus, ferocious power, tender heart. Would you give up everything to follow that Jesus? Would you be willing to sacrifice for him? To suffer maybe? To be persecuted, ridiculed? That's, well, that's called faith. And Jesus looks at this woman here and says to her, daughter, your faith, your faith has made you well. Jesus wants everyone in that crowd to know that this woman was not healed by some magical spell or some incantation or even by some magical piece of clothing. I I actually thought in my studies this week of how you could wrongly preach this text. And there's actually a lot of different ways, amazingly enough. But she wasn't healed because, like, we don't need to be, you don't need to be Googling magical piece of clothing this week. That's not why she was healed. Jesus says it was her faith that saved her. She trusted that Jesus could do for her what nobody else could do. Well, that Jesus is the kind of Savior that desperate people like you and I need. Now, you may be here and think, you know, wow, that's, that's kind of a gripping story. I can't wait for part two next week. I'm going to come back, see what Brinkman has to say about that. But you may also be thinking, you know what, happy ending, but I, I don't think I have that kind of faith. I want that kind of faith. I'm not sure that I could do what that suffering woman did. And so perhaps you're here and you're asking, you know, how much faith, how much faith do I need? How much faith do I really need in Jesus for him to to work and move on my behalf, to, to act in my life as he did for this suffering woman? How much faith do I really need in order for, for Jesus to do what I think is actually impossible, to forgive my waywardness this last week, to heal me, to take away my shame, to take away my grief or loss, to make me clean, to forgive me, to restore me to a right relationship My Heavenly Father, how much faith do I need? And the answer is, enough. Enough faith. Church, your faith this morning may be frail, may be flickering, it may be weak. It is imperfect as mine is, it may be small. But if your faith is firmly in Jesus Christ, then it's enough to move mountains. Jesus said in Matthew 17, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, 
you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. In other words, Jesus will honor your last ounce of faith. He will honor your, your barely flicker of faith in him. But here's the point. It has to be in him. It's faith in him. In other words, the object of your faith and my faith absolutely matters. It's faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. It matters, brothers and sisters, if your faith is firmly placed in Jesus or not. That's why this story here, this story is not in our Bibles so that you and I can grow in putting more faith in ourselves. That would be another way to preach this text wrongly. This, this story is not about the, the power of positive thinking. This woman did not have a positive thought in 12 years. And next week, a 12-year-old dead girl doesn't either. This story is not position yourself in such a way, kind of maneuver so that maybe, maybe Jesus will notice you at some point and maybe he'll have kindness on you. This story is not about faith in a general sense, sort of a vague sense. Well, as long as you have faith, I have faith, we all have faith, that's good. That's not what's going on here. This is a story about the awesome power of a man, Jesus from Nazareth, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and what he can do with a man, woman, boy, and girl who believes that he can save desperate people who, who have tried everything to save themselves and to fix what is broken, and they can't. But he can. So if your faith is in Jesus... It is enough. It is absolutely enough. And you qualify then to have Jesus move and work and act on your behalf and to do something immeasurably more than all that you could ask or imagine. So I close with this. I need faith enough faith this week to actually believe everything that I just preached. So would you pray for me? Help Brinkman to believe everything that he just preached. And I'll be praying that for you. And together as a church, let's ask God to grow us in faith. He'll honor that prayer. He's not going to turn us away as we sincerely come before him and say, Lord, Increase my faith in you. And let's watch what he'll do. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, there are no shortages of situations in our lives today that are broken and that perhaps appear hopeless for us, probably because we've tried to figure out solutions. Perhaps some here this morning are flat out weary and exhausted. God, have mercy on them. Have mercy on us. Lord, I pray that this week you would grow us in faith, slowly, surely. Take what we have now, Lord, 
and by your spirit do immeasurably more than even what my brothers and sisters are thinking about and praying about. And do it, Lord, for the sake of your great name and the glory of the gospel, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.